What's up, I'm Brody Vinson, and on this episode of Profession Session, I talk to Adrian Kaler. He's a leadership engagement expert, and we get into all kinds of things from traits of good versus great leaders, how to create cultural change that works really well in an organization, how to lead yourself better in order to lead others, and all the different things that he sees in his typical work with CEOs and executives that really work well, that you can take away as a leader or an aspiring leader. This one is packed full of information. I learned so much that I was constantly taking notes, and I think you're really gonna wanna watch till the end to really pick up on a lot of this, and maybe even rewatch. Real quick, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. My goal is to share the lessons of these interviews with as many people as possible, and the show only grows if more people find out about it. So if you could just do me a quick, quick favor and think about how you found this episode and make sure to return the favor by telling someone else about it, sharing it, whatever that looks like, I would appreciate it so, so much because that can help me keep growing the show. And if you've gotten any value out of the podcast, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. I do interviews like this every week with new and exciting professionals. So stay tuned to keep your career moving in the direction you want. Thanks, and let's get into this week's episode. Do you want to start maybe just with uh, giving kind of a brief overview of your background, kind of how you got into what you do, and uh, and how you got to where you're at today? Sure. You want to start now? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm recording on all just jump in. channels, so you're good to go whenever you're ready. Great. Well, Brody, thanks for having me on, man. Really honored to be here. Um, as you were mentioning, as we we're talking about the heart of the podcast and and who listens here, you know, you're saying 18 to 35 year old hustlers, people that are entrepreneurial, people that are deciding to, I mean, the entrepreneur can mean a lot of things these days, but you know, I think at the heart of it is folks deciding to craft their own path. And I love those types of people. I've always wanted to be one of those types of people. I am one of those types of people. I try to foster all that in my kids. Um, and anybody that I get to influence is helping people decide to take their heroic journey toward journey towards freedom. Um, and you don't have to do that vocationally, but if you can do it vocationally and you can, and it works and you're, and there's lots of things that's necessary to make that work. Um, but you know, I've never really had a boss and, um, it's been a lot better that way. So, um, so who am I? I'm Adrian Kaler and I coach executives, you know, fast and furious and frustrated executives. We have a, have a coaching company uh, called Take New Ground. We coach and we train and we, uh, have, we have a consultancy practice as well. So we come in and help fast-moving founders figure out how to get new results. Um, so that has some planning to it. It has some strategy to it and some insight to it and some experience and all that kind of stuff. But that's usually not actually what's wrong. Our work with most leaders is like, they're always really talented. I mean, if they're talking to me, they're really talented and they're really ambitious and they're very action oriented. The challenge is when they actually, they've already had a, a, um, a section or a, a segment of success and then it's working. And now they actually have to take on the, the challenge of being successful, which usually means scaling, which usually means actually building in a team. And then the their world gets really complex. Um, because working with other people is, you know, working with myself is a pretty big, you know, pretty hard job, number one. And then when I start, I got to start translating what I think to other people and then dealing with them and all their issues as well. And they've got as many or more than I do. 
um, that really becomes complex. So generating new results is what we aim at. But, you know, the way to get there is, I mean, leadership is getting results through other people. So how do you build a team, inspire a team, enroll a team, mobilize a team, engage a team? That's all art. And that's human art. So leadership has got science to it, but then it's also got a, a healthy, maybe a majority of it is art. And that always yeah. comes out in language. It comes out in action, comes out in um, how we are with one another. So how do you and, strike that balance between the art and the science there? Well, how do I strike a balance? I don't think I aim to strike a balance first. Because um, so that's a good question. Let me pause for it. Um, I'm always paying attention to reality. So, so i.e. feedback, because I, I tend to say like current reality doesn't lie. We do, right? Like, like I, we're always, you and I, every single person on the planet is living in our perception of the world. We like to think we're living in the world, but we're not. We're living in our perception of the world. What I think about the world, what I think about me, what I think about you, like we're on this podcast together right now. And it seems like we're on the same podcast, but we're not. You're on your version in your own head. I'm on my version in my own head. Like as I'm talking, you're listening and you're making up what you think I mean. And, you know, and then you're giving me credit for what you make up. Right. Because that's what Adrian said. I didn't say that. I said, some, I mean, I made vibrations. Your brain did a whole bunch of math on if you liked it, didn't like it. It's smart. It's stupid. He's trustworthy. He's not, you know, you're just in lots of conversations. Um, and then you're thinking about, the podcast and you're thinking about the next question and you're wondering about this suit and how awesome it looks. And I agree, by the way, if that's your perception <laughs> of it, I think you look great. Um, thank you. So I like that shirt too. That's sweet. Thank you, brother. <laughs> um, scotch and soda is the brand. Um, oh, cool. any, anytime I look good, it's because my wife dressed me. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I pay attention to reality and then what I'm making up about reality. So then, then I'll say, what is needed? Is it more science or is it more art? Um, cause sometimes it is a competency issue, you know, some kind of in leadership, it's competency. Like what does somebody need to learn? What, what do they need to practice? What experience do they need to have? Um, what example or model do they need to go study? What book do they need to read? And like information and mechanics, sometimes it's that. And I mean, that's always there at some level, the willingness to go get those things, the willingness to notice my own deficit, the willingness to ask for help. The willingness to tell on myself early, like when something's a shit hors d'oeuvre instead of it becoming a shit sandwich. Like that's all art. That's human experience. That's, you know, way of being. That's who I am becoming. And so if I've got a growth mindset or whatever, use some kind of cliche, if I've got a view of myself that I'm an ever evolving person, then I've set up the world in which I can engage anything. And, and I, I, get, I get the ownership in self-mastery, because that's the third bucket, by the way. Generate new results, enroll a team, high-performing team, and self-mastery. And we focus a ton on self-mastery, because if a leader's willing to enter that game, which is like the most, I think, the most fulfilling game and the most resourceful game and the most effective game, is I'm my own first client. I am my own first responsibility of deciding who I am and how I'm going to show up in the world and deal with reality. If somebody's willing to do that, then the possibilities are endless. I've got kind of almost an inception kind of question here about the coaching. So yeah. I would I would presume that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would presume that in a lot of cases when you're dealing with coaching a leader, they probably tend to be people that are a little bit more open to having a growth mindset. And so it might just be about coaching that further. How do you coach leaders to 
in turn coach growth mindset in their team where it might not come as naturally? Well, I think if you're leading something, you're at stake. And if you're at stake, right, you're, if, you're, if you're on your heads on, you know, if your psychology's on the line, your own worldview, you, maybe you got money on the line, you've got reputation on the line, then people tend to be desperate um, because I, I got to make this work. Um, and then that tends to generate a growth mindset. I mean, the ideal is like anybody anywhere is in a growth mindset, but that's not always the case. The, um, so yes, to your premise, I'm just affirming your premise and why it is for most people is like they better. Um, and sometimes it's 90% of their world is growth mindset and 10% isn't. And when I'm talking to them, I'm searching for what, where they're stuck. And it's usually, usually going to be invisible for them, but if they can, if they are open to taking a look and seeing and maybe noticing their blind spots, which usually happen like epiphanies, and usually it feels like bad news first time they hear it, um, because you know we like to be right about stuff. We're ego-driven machines. So if they have some humility, and then they can have some kind of breakthrough, um, then that ends up making them excited about discovery. Like what else? What else have I not been seeing? If I didn't see this, what else have I not been seeing? And so to your question of like, how do you take somebody that's got a growth mindset and then generate that in culture? Well, most leaders, because we're up against time and because, I don't know, we're usually following some kind of model and culture that the person with the answer is the smartest person in the room. Um, I don't think that's true. I think the person that asks the most penetrating questions is the smartest person in the room because they're the, the, they're the biggest learner. And they're actually not just asking for themselves, they're penetrating questions. Like actually, how do I connect with that person in a deep way and use a question, use inquiry to get to the source, get to the heart of the matter for them. So back to your question, helping them realize that part of them has to be a teacher and part of them uh, also is meant to be a coach. You know, so I'm always training my leaders to be, to be coaches, which requires them to listen a lot more generously than they usually are to suspend all their natural machinery that wants to just correct or reprimand or just teach or just do it themselves and actually listen and uh, give somebody enough. The challenge is this, is that if you want to promote a growth mindset in them and anybody on your team, you have to normalize failure. And that's a pretty, that's, that's, that's a big leap of faith. If I can normalize failure and not like make it okay, I mean like it's gonna happen. If we're striving well, we're gonna make a lot of mistakes. If we're striving well, I mean, if we're doing a great job, that means we're taking a lot of action, acting out of courage, and we're gonna make a lot of mistakes. And hopefully we see those mistakes quickly, we, we clear them up quickly, we ask forgiveness when we need to, we learn what we need to learn, and then get back up and go again. And But that's a risk for a leader because Shit, I, in my in most leaders' view, would you do you want your people making more or less mistakes? Most people are going to say less. Um, but the trade-off people usually don't see is they've created an environment of fear, so people are actually are making as many mistakes, and they're just hiding them, and they're not learning from them. They're not resourcing the team, and or they're actually making less mistakes. But because but how have they done that? They've done more predictable action, and they haven't taken any risks recently, and they're not challenging themselves. So if you promote an environment like that where failure is a part of success and learning is actually the key thing and not making the same dumb mistake twice, I can make a dumb mistake. That's fine. I don't want to make, I don't want to double down on stupid. I call it like make the dumb mistake again. 
um, and we champion learning, um, then that's that's how you get that mindset into people below. And that takes that's not human. I mean, that's not that's evolution says don't do that. Um, so you got to I mean, this is it's countercultural to lead like that. But, you know, all of our leaders were aiming at helping them create that type of environment where people actually presence themselves. They actually are fully engaged and are willing to come to the table full throttle, even if it means we, you know, make mistakes from time to time. So it takes rewiring, it sounds like. It sounds like it just takes taking well, their, their natural kind of evolutionary reaction and and kind of rewiring that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be great if that was the case. I mean, yeah. it, it sounds so permanent, right? When you say rewiring, it's like, oh, I was wired this way on a Monday, and then I made this decision, and now I'm forever wired like this on Tuesday. I just wish that was the case. That's never the case. Um, I mean, you can, I think you can, you can build in habits and you can have, you know, core values that drive you that actually are the filter between me and the world. And I'm going to see the world as generous. I'm going to see the world as grateful. I'm going to see the world as connected. I'm going to see the world as love. I'm going to see the world as effective, whatever discipline, all those types, pick whatever, uh, pick whatever, um, high ideals you have. You can put those in front of you, but there's always going to be this tension between, Am I here for others? Am I here for a purpose? Or am I here for myself? And that's this both and view. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, you better be here for yourself because otherwise you're going to dry up and you're going to blame other people and be full of resentment or have a lot of bad habits or, you know, you know, ruin your life in some regard. And I've done that in different seasons of my life in hypercolor. Oh, and so it's like this both and thing. So yes, yes, rewire, but also you have to tend to those wires every single day and realize that there's no default setting. There's no, I mean, there are patterns that we've practiced over time that become so automatic for me that it is my default setting if I'm not conscious and if I'm not deciding that my choice is what generates my life. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's not something you can just flip a switch on. It's like it's a constant thing that it's you a have constant to, thing. to upkeep and, and well, kind of curate. It's it is especially man. I'm thinking I'm so inspired that you reach out to 18 to 35 year olds, man. What a key time to wonder about these things. I mean, the, I think it, it takes starting early. Yeah, well, it helps. It helps to start early. That's for sure. The there's a book that came to mind just in case people don't listen to the end. If you ask that kind of question, um, there's a book called The Courage to Be Disliked the courage to be disliked. It's not as bombastic as the title is. It's actually a survey of Adlerian psychology. Now Adler, um, which you probably know, Adler was a contemporary with Freud. Freud said, Freud ruined the world. Freud said this, that we are our past. That's why all, most all therapy, not all, but most all therapy is, is an etiological view. Like I am the effect, the history and where I came from and my family system and my environment and the color of my skin, blah, blah, blah. All that and all the impact of that equals me, right? So it's a very naturally victimized view. I'm not myself. I'm what that said. I'm the quality of my dad or my mom or my environment or the economy or anything. I am the effect of that. That's an etiological view. That's how Freud ruled the world, and we love it. We love it because I don't have to take any responsibility at all, right? It's That's more, why every. It's more based around coping than really taking responsibility for your own is. path. It is survival with with sparkles on it. Now, that's that's what Freud said. What Adler said is, I am my future. I am my cause. I am what I'm committed to. So whatever I'm committed to in the future generates who I am now. 
And we also know that's true. That's just a riskier thing, right? Because you could blow it in a relationship. Everybody's got this kind of story. You've blown it in a relationship. You've blown it in a meeting. You've blown it on a venture or whatever. And you decide to learn from that and decide to say, you know what? I'm not going to blow it again. I'm not destined to blow it. I'm not some idiot. I'm not some blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to wear all the shame that culture tells me to wear. Instead, I'm going to make a new choice. I'm going to stand in my own power. I'm going to make a new choice. Now, that's Adlerian view. That's a teleological view, he would call it. Anyway, this book called The Courage to Be Disliked is a survey of those views. And it's, it's an allegory. It's a conversation between an old philosopher and a young man. It's really easy to read. Everybody ought to read it. They've sold like, I don't know, 10 million copies based out of Japan. Um, anybody, if I was between 18 and 35 and I hadn't read that book, I would immediately read the book because it'll give you lots of resource on how to engage reality in a way that actually gives you the biggest shot to generate your reality and then to generate your future. I love that. I think just the acceptance of extreme responsibility for everything in your life is kind of a right freeing on. thing. It's oh, 100%, it man. opens you up to, to that growth mindset a lot more. So we've 100%. talked about some traits, I think, that help with leadership. What do you find are maybe the top three to five traits in natural born leaders? And can those be coached? How are those coached? How does that typically play out? Yeah. A lot of questions there. You can kind of take them in stride. That's great. Yeah. So let's start with the big one, the first one, which is what's the distinction between a natural born leader and a crafted leader? Um, I mean, it's fun. We could get into a big philosophical conversation right now. Um, I'm open to it. Well, since I'm not Freudian at all, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to like natural born leader is in some ways. um, I mean, I could I could claim that for myself. I don't know if I could. I mean, if I watched my own life from a young kid, I was always leading. Now, I don't know if that was like if I don't know if that was born in me. I know it was modeled for me. I had a couple parents who were like pillars in the community, small town kid. And they were leaders and they were teachers and coaches and, you know, leaders in community and church life and blah, blah, blah. Lots of most arenas in my life, my parents were leading. So maybe I just absorbed that early. But was that in me or did I see it? And did I see it and did I reject it or did I see it and I accept it? Because a lot of people are born around a lot of leaders and their parents are leaders and they say, nope, no, thanks. Don't want to do that. I don't want that life. I want mine. So anyway, I'll let anyway, natural born leaders. Let's say. Key, key, you know, uh, character, key character traits for those that actually want to practice leadership in their life. Um, and if you, if it, so, you could look at this as a way to enhance leadership. If you were, if you could see a history of your own leadership in the past, which we might call them natural born leaders, or if you actually want to try something new. Um, the uh, number one for me is always one that you just talked about a minute ago. Is like a willingness to be responsible for my life. Now, that's not a blame conversation. That's not a a shame conversation either. That's more a contribution. Like I, if I'm waking up into the world and whatever results are happening, I want to in a humble way own my contribution to those results. So can be in great things. Most people out of fear of looking arrogant don't own their gifts. But it's good to own your gifts. Like, hey, I'm really great at this. I know I'm great at this. I know I'm world-class at this. I know among my friends, among my teammates, I am best at this. And that's just it. Bam. Like, just stand right in it. 
Also, that's there's a contribution there. Also, if something's broken and I'm leading, it's also on me. Like, and maybe maybe Tom, like the guy on my team, he's the one that screwed it up. But what conversations did I not have with Tom along the way? What conversations did I know I needed to have? What kind of hunches did I have that I didn't go pursue? What kind of ways in which I didn't set him up or when I saw him starting to shift, I didn't interject and have a conversation. So a really phenomenal leader is going to wonder about how they've contributed to all results in their life. That's one side of it. The other side of it as well is powerful leaders own the fact that they create their own experience, period which is like a one step in from results, right? So, because an experience actually is a result. We just don't call it that. We call it thoughts and we call it feelings. And we might call it intuition. We might call it lots of things. But I'm actually creating whatever that experience is as well. Now, that's a pretty risky, most people don't want to take that step. They just want to say, oh, this happened, so I felt that way. Or this happened, so I did that. But that's a Freudian view, right? That's an I am at effect of circumstances. Great leaders are going to say, I am the captain of my own ship, despite the circumstances. Bring on the wind, bring on the waves. I'm going to manage myself. I'm going to lead myself. So that would be number two, very similar to number one, um, but goes deeper. So that's like more of this self-mastery conversation. So they are naturally with that. There's like a handful that hang off of number two. Like, like they are reflective naturally. They actually want to give themselves feedback on a regular basis. They seek feedback from other people because, they, you know, we're all, I forget who, who it was that said, I think I misquoted all the time, Xander, I always say, I don't know if it's, if it's him, but our view of ourselves fluctuates between flattery and pure fantasy, right? So we're pretty high on ourselves, naturally. And, you know, some people are high on themselves by being hard on themselves, by the way. You know, so it's like I have like a, I mess it up and then I, I'm really hard on myself for three days, but usually that's based on arrogance anyway because I should be perfect, right? I should be perfect. I should be perfect. Mm. And so I'm really hard on my, it's a sneaky way. Shame is a sneaky, it's a, I call shame sad arrogance. It's like a protective measure. No shrink in the world would say that probably. They would say it's a feeling. I think it's a strategy. <laughs> so the, let's go, let's keep going. So maybe a third thing, third great quality is a willingness to account for communication. So that all com all communication, the meaning of every community, let me say it this way. The meaning of every communication is in the listener, not the speaker. So if I'm a leader and I get the fact that my job is to create the world, like if I've got a team or I got a product, I've got to put language to the, the purpose of the team, the vision of the team, the, the, the values of the team, the impact of the product. Like my job as a leader is to language reality in a way that makes people want to come to it. That's what great leaders do. And I can think I did a great job, but if I didn't, if it didn't make a difference out there with other people, I didn't do a great job. I could think I'm, I mean, I'm like Obama over here with great rhetoric, but people didn't shift. I'm like, I could blame them, which is easy to do. Most people would just go to that naturally. It's like, ah, they're not listening or they're stupid or blah, blah, blah. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Instead of saying, no, my job is to break through to them. So I wonder what it's gonna take for me in my presence, in my speaking, in my articulation, in my explore, in my exploration, in my boldness, in my courage, in my humility, what's it going to take for me to make a difference for the listener? So great leaders do that. Ed's saying um, maybe where did I fail to communicate properly? Right. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe that. Or what was going on for them that I wasn't interested in asking? Mm. You know, because great leaders, you could say, what did I 
not communicate properly. That and that could be it. Maybe I left something out, or maybe I spoke about something poorly. But usually, people don't want to close loops in communication. So I might say, "Here's what we're doing this month. Here's the outcomes for this month. Here's what we need." Blah 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 blah. And they don't stop and say, "All right, what questions are there in the room?" Or what am I missing that you guys are thinking about that I'm missing? Or how might I be off? You know, those types of questions to check the listening of the person that you're talking to and to see if they're actually in or if you see you get some kind of cordial hypocrisy, I call it, where it's like, sure, but it's like, right, good idea, Adrian, you know, but they're actually not in. Right. So maybe so it might, maybe it, maybe it's a miscommunication on my side. But my broader point is, is communication is a loop. Right. So if I'm not getting anything in return that is similar or aligned with what I'm saying, then I'm responsible for that. Most people are not this. I'm talking about exceptional leaders here. Most people are not that curious about if their communication works. They're just they're just curious about how to communicate something that's accurate, quote unquote, or makes them look good. I've got a question for you. Do you think being a leader or or the pursuit of being a leader is for everyone or is it not for everyone? Well, it better be. It better be for everyone. Well, let's see. Let's give a real answer to this question. Is it for everyone? It is for everyone that chooses it. And if you don't choose it, you're in trouble. Hmm. Now, some people don't want to ever lead other people because maybe it's not in their where they're comfortable personality wise, maybe it's just like too much risk or they just prefer to be on a team and like follow really well, but you can be a great leader as a follower. Um, but you know, every, everyone has the opportunity to lead themselves. And if you're not leading themselves, then you're, then you're just, you're, 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 you're following someone else and you're actually going to set yourself up for bitterness and resentment. And out of that comes a ton of evil. Um, so we all know those types of people that are like just bitter all the time and cynical about the world. Well, hundred percent, a hundred percent of those people have decided not to lead themselves in a, in a healthy way. If they're, if they're in, if they're a cynic, they're leading themselves in cynicism, but cynicism is just, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and throw bombs all day long to protect myself. That's I'm playing the game called self-protection, right? I'm trying to preserve me and my view and I'm going to sit over here and take shots at you. That is leadership. It's just not effective leadership and leaves them empty and leaves them, you know, alone. So everybody, the invite is for everyone to lead themselves impeccably. And that's a tough game. And you don't go learn that anywhere. Unfortunately, they don't teach that in school. But I think that would be the most important thing that they could teach in school is around self-leadership. But we've not yet seen that. Because it seems like for good leaders, it begins with self-leadership and it can stop there. But if you want to lead others, it's got to go further. That's right. That's right. For every impeccable leader. Now you can get great results and look like a great leader and be hated. And when you turn 95, you got a lot of great shit, but nobody likes you and you're full of regret. So, you know, (laughs) the honest conversation, that's why like the honest conversation about leadership is really holistic. And we love to like mechanize it and like put it in five steps and blah, blah, blah. And that sounds great. It's just, if we actually want to be, an alive person, we got to take in all this complexity. It's not that complicated. It is just really complex though. Like there's lots of pieces to it, which if you decide that wonder and growth and 
exploration and curiosity and discovery and and legacy and all those types of things like are meaningful to you then you're in a great spot i think it probably comes more naturally if you are able to embrace that complexity is what you're saying you embrace the complexity and you don't let yourself be turned off by it you you don't expect that you'll figure it out and just be a leader all of a sudden it's it's kind of an acceptance that it's a journey for you it is Um, would you say that you have a particular style of leadership or that there are different styles hundred percent there's lots of different styles um, my the way I talk about my work with folks is probably my leadership style I, I talk about fierce advocacy so I mean when I was 18 to, to 30 for sure I was really scared of being myself and that that what I mean by myself was I was always a pretty intense guy. You know, like I took life seriously. I didn't like, I was always, in, uh, you know, I was way too serious for my family. At least I felt that way. Like I was always asking philosophical questions and wondering psychological issues and kind of troubled, you know, um, internally troubled and anxious and whatever. That's part of what generated leadership because I realized that if I lead the future, then I can predict it better um, versus like waiting for somebody else to run the show. Um, so, you know, if, so I remind me what the question was. I just was thinking about me as a young man. So I was wondering if you, and I, I should expand style leadership. Yeah. And I can expand the question a little bit. So I had asked if you think, if you think you have a particular style Mm. of leadership, um, you you did answer that there certainly are particular styles. What would you say your particular style is? Yeah. So my particular style back to it was like what I call fierce advocacy. I was thinking about and got a little on a sidetrack there around, you know, how did I integrate kind of my personality? Because I just owned it, I don't know, around 30 probably that I'm just more a serious guy. Like I'm an intense dude. And the world needs intense people and the world needs like funny people and goofballs and and hyper intellectual types and the world needs all of us and so i just i i have over time just let myself be myself which i just enjoy getting after it you know and i grew up playing sports and blah 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 and there's lots of reasons for that but i just like getting after it and i'm just the deep end guy so my leadership style i've just i've just realized that i'm an acquired taste that was how it hit me in the beginning like to give myself some freedom is like, I'm an acquired taste. I'm not for everybody. I'm, I happen to be very loving, very compassionate, like spent years of my life uh, as a pastor, right? So advocating for people in that way and like helping people explore their own spirituality and put their lives back together and with the brokenhearted. And I was like an activist type pastor guy. So we did a lot of work in the streets and traveled globally. And anyway, lots of the whole section of my life that's based on helping the marginalized and helping the broken and the healing and, you know, poor, oppressed, all that. Um, so I'm really loving. And also life really matters to me. Like I, I'm very aware and think about it multiple times on a daily basis that at some point we're going to die. Or for me, at some point I'm going to die. So when I'm, you know, taking a moment this morning with my son, when I come back from the gym, he's already downstairs, he's nine. Um, they got three boys and a girl, but one of my sons, the nine-year-old, um, he's, you know, gets up, gets up from eating his breakfast and gives me a hug. And I just like go off, go off on how much I love this kid. Love him. 
like the, and I, you know, he, he's bored with the conversation, but I'm just telling him like, you are my joy. My, and I'm like teary about it. And there's nothing you could ever do to push me away. I'm always coming for you. And I'm just like, cause you know what? I mean, if, if he's at school right now and something horrible could happen at school, he could die at school today. We don't know why, but he could. And I want that to be cemented in him. Now I'm weird because I'm conscious of that stuff. So point being that fiercely advocating for people is my style. So I want what people want and I believe in them deeply and I believe in what's possible for them. And I'm not here to mess around. Um, this is when I have like my coaching hat on and my leadership hat on. I really want what people want. And because we're humans, we're all really inauthentic, including this guy. So I know I want people to stand for me in a way that like looks past any kind of facade I've got on and really penetrates and gets connected to me and believes in me. So I stand like that with my teammates, with my partners, with my clients for sure, and believe in them and they want to build resilience in the relationship, which usually comes from truth telling back and forth. So I build a, a conversation about integrity and we're always going to be looking at it and see how much integrity we have or, or, or we're going to sell for having some kind of bullshit conversation. There's lots of other leadership styles. Some people are like, quote unquote, visionaries. Some people are like, they lead through operations. And there's lots of, some of them are like lead through conversa conversations. They would call it maybe the more therapeutic. Um, you know, there's all these types of leaders. I mean, maybe you like, to, you like to be the research person, um, you know, but it effective leadership is going to start with self-mastery and then deeply connecting to someone for some kind of cause and purpose. What are the most difficult leadership styles to coach, uh, at least for you personally? For me personally is if someone is so ambitious that they don't care. These are folks I don't work with. Is that you're so ambitious you don't care about people. I'm just mm -hmm. not interested in working with someone like that. So I don't know what that leadership style would be. Um, they're usually. Sounds like know, a poor, a poor style. It is. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, it's effective. This happens all the time. I mean, lots of leaders were around. Lots of people we actually worship in culture are these types of leaders. You know, Steve Jobs, for most of his career, was this type of leader. He was just so committed to the art and to what he was creating that he didn't care about, you know, what came of people around him. You know, he's yeah, obviously that's the name that came to mind. Yeah. And he created culture, man. I mean, that's amazing. But like a guy that probably wouldn't want to talk to me, which is totally fine. I'm just playing a different game than he is. And I wouldn't have worked with him. You know, if he if I mean, the reality is, though, everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be accepted. Everybody wants to be understood. And even if you're like that, you're a lot of times you're like that because you don't have faith in yourself. Hmm. And, you, and if you meaning like you're pretty fragile internally, arrogance is a cover up for insecurity almost 100 percent of the time, if not 100 percent of the time. So if I'm that arrogant, it means there's something I don't want to see in myself or that I don't want you to see in me. So I become this wall. So people that are that walled off, I mean, I usually come at them hard just to see because no, nobody's usually come at them hard with love. That's the, you know, like I'm not here to tear anybody down. I'm just here to get behind this wall. You don't have to want, you don't have to let me in. That's cool. We don't have to talk ever again. No big deal. I, I love you no matter what. Um, but nobody, t we don't talk like that in culture, you know? especially in the business context. It's all like, we call it professional, but it's really kind of politeness that steals from possibility. Hmm. 
That's it's cool to be less polite, right? It's just like, hey, let's get to the heart of the matter. We're both human beings. We're both really insecure. We both are really ambitious to get this thing done. Can we be humans together? Like we have a holistic, your life is complex. My life is complex. I'm not who I want to be yet. You're not who you want to be yet. You want to grow. I want to grow. Great. Can we just do all that at the same time instead of like, you know, jockeying for a position and trying to look good all the time and like playing the game that most people play? It usually just steals from resource. I think that makes a lot of sense. How do how do you measure your success as a leader? Not not just you personally, but how how would you coach someone to measure their success as a leader? Does that look different for everyone? Well, there are ca- there are principles that are universal. Yes, it'll look different for everyone, but there are principles that are universal. So, um, what's my success as a leader? I would first always look at results. Like first off, do I have an aim at all? If I don't have an aim, I'm not a leader. I mean, I might be a tra- I might be like a cult leader, or I might be like you know attracting people to my personality, which is fine. Maybe that's leadership. But if you're a leader, you've got some kind of aim, you've got some kind of purpose, you've got some kind of vision that you're clear about. Um, and we can all wax and wane in certain times and whatever, like we're all normal. But um, but if you're a leader, you've got some kind of aim. And if I'm effective as a leader, I'm delivering that aim. I'm, you know, that's happening. Whatever that aim is, is happening. I can see it happening or I'm on my way to making that happen. Right. And I'm continuing to experiment on the way to do that. Um, success as a great leader is are you generating leadership around you? Or are, I mean, that's great leadership. Other leadership is maybe we're just getting people to do shit, right? Like we're, people are tools and I'm just like, I've got 10 people on my team and I tell them all what to do every day and they go do it and they, and they bring me back results and I go tell them what to do next. That's some version of leadership. It's just not great leadership. Great leadership generates a visionary culture and an engaged and, and a responsible culture where people have, they're, they are committed to the outcomes and they're also very alive because they've aligned their personal interest to the corporate outcomes. So, you know, I, I would naturally say like results and our people engaged are their lives getting better. That's what great leaders would ask themselves. Not, like, did we do it is one thing. That's kind of small play for great leaders. Did we do it is easy. Are people more engaged over time or are they less engaged over time? Great leaders want that. And they're, they're, that's part of their, how do I increase engagement over time instead of people just getting bored and starting to dust off their resumes? I love so, that. Yeah. So there's a there's a minimum threshold of can you get people to take the action and and get the desired result, but that's kind of that's that's a good leader. Good leader can yeah. do that, but a great leader can can get that minimum threshold covered but also affect cultural change. Right consistently. on. I mean the I first like thing that. is more like management, right? It's more like you know, allocating resources, getting people to do stuff, getting the results, and how do I organize this stuff and and create a, a mousetrap so that that thing happens and I can or I can I can um, get people involved either by inspiration or by affirmation or by guilt or by fear or whatever and whatever. It's just to get these results. And that's more just management, I would say. Leaders get that the humans are the potential not the process the humans that run the process are the potential could you describe some some traits or some common threads that you see in the in some of the best cultures that you've observed some sure. common threads maybe 
Sure. Um, great cultures. All right. Well, great cultures are, cl- I'll try to do it kind of in order. Um, great, great cultures are really clear about what, what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, so back to the aim conversation, like we know why we're here, what are we up to? And we're unapologetic about what we're up to. Cause like, you know, like working somewhere, if we talk about, are you talking about like work culture? When you ask yeah, I would say work culture, like the best cultures in some kind of organization, right whether on. big That's or great. small. I figured you were. So if I'm talking about work culture, like they are really clear about why they exist and they exist to, to generate some kind of value for their customer, whether it's a product or a service or a experience or whatever, like they're there, they are there and to do that. And that's like, they're un, they're unapologetic about it. They're really clear about it. They keep getting clearer and clearer over time about what that is. And they're very engaged with their customers about that, if that's working or not. Right. So they're always in this constant conversation with the recipients of the, their purpose, which continues to refine their purpose. So they have that, and then they're really aligned around that purpose. Like that is the, that is the reason we're here is to do this purpose. And then we all are in service of that. And I'm in service of others on the team up sideways and down in the organization in order to make that purpose happen. Right. So there's some humility that's baked into it and it's a learning culture. Um, and it's an experimental culture. It's, we're really persistent. Like we're going to work really hard and overcome adversity. And we're going to always be trying new things in equal measure, right? So whatever's needed, I'm either going to stick to something that's hard and bind and, you know, bind together and make this thing work and put in grit and time and effort and all that. And I'm always going to be looking for what's a smarter way of doing this. Who, who's got the better idea here? We've been doing this for a month and it's not working. What's the better idea? So they were experimenting and that type of Variety usually keeps people really engaged and lets people know that it's not just the the quote unquote leaders that have all the ideas. The best idea might come from the person that never gets asked the question. So you got to go find out who's not getting asked the question and where's, you know, so the great answers are hidden in organizations. We don't know who's got them. So in some ways the organization's flat in that way. It's a flat in the sense that everybody's, everybody's as valuable as the other person. Um, they're going to be, they're going to naturally be stacked in in a hierarchy and the hierarchy is helpful for, um, chain of command and who's responsible for what and who's, you know, who's making the call on the field and that kind of thing. Um, so great leaders do that. Our great organizations do that open to feedback, not only open, usually we say open is like the goal, really seeking feedback on a regular basis. You'll see some themes in what I'm talking about, but like this kind of consistent loop on every single player feels honored, um, is honored, um, gets to gets to share what they want, gets feedback on a regular basis, and we're in this thing together. So it's like, what is really clear? Why is really clear? And who is really clear? Like what's required of every person on the team? I talk to leaders about this every day because usually there's a breakdown. When there's a breakdown on the team, the leader hasn't been clear with the team about what's wanted and needed from them in order to really play on this team from an attitudinal perspective. They might be really smart, but they don't give a shit about people and that just doesn't work. Or they might be really smart and they're really arrogant. They might be really smart and they hide stuff until the end. They might be really smart and they're possessive. Well, that, none of that, all that's cultural questions. That, that, those are cultural dynamics that if a leader doesn't see that early, snuff it out, re-aim and let great smart people go because they're toxic, um, then the, the culture is going to get toxic. So, but great organizations, and to your point or to your question, great cultures have 
uh, they make the values the priority and who really, we are who we are with one another i really liked your point in there about how the conversation should flow in all directions not just down the chain of command but up and down and side to side it it made me think of uh the show undercover boss actually mm. where a leader goes in and they disguise themselves and it allows them to talk to someone and get feedback on the the lower ends of the organization as far as the hierarchy that they probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. I think there's a lot of power in that and being open to that. Um, there is. Another thing that kind of came to my mind there is you mentioned good leaders know when to let someone go. Yeah. Uh, how do you, what are some of the, the signs that tell you that? How do you know when when maybe your leadership is, is not going to be enough for someone and they're they're just a, they're causing more harm to the organization than, than that's worth trying to kind of correct it and affect that change. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always going to be about results first. So if don't hire people to do jobs, hire people to generate results. That's where people mostly get it wrong. They're like, oh, I need to go hire a fill in the blank job description. And they go find that job description and they say, okay, great, go do that. And there's no really clear KPIs or whatever you want to call them, outcomes, you know, results that people are committed to create, or you might call them goals. They do, they're not willing to get really clear about that because it's complicated to get clear about it. Um, and if they get clear about it, it's kind of like in a relationship when you have boundaries. As soon as you get clear on a boundary, then the harder part is actually to keep it. And it it is, does take some strength to like put a boundary down, but it's even harder to say, you know, have a lifestyle of talking about boundaries. So same thing in, in work life, where it's usually around results, like, okay, marketing person, I've hired you to get this many new customers in the door. And, you know, they, whenever you're looking at results, they're either going hit to the, hit the goal or not hit the goal. You know, they're going to hit it and maybe just barely hit it or they're going to exceed it. So if whatever they're oriented, so not only two goals themselves, but also their orientation to them, what do they do? What do they do? If they miss a goal, what do they do? Do they... Do they project? Do they hide? Do they justify? Those are all natural human occurrences. If they don't have some kind of growth mindset and then really responsible, then that's already trouble. And then most people don't talk about the attitude that's going on there. So um, your question was, when do you let somebody go? If they consistently can't or won't, it's usually won't, do what it takes to hit the results, then they got to go. Because otherwise, you're, what are you paying them for? You know, I mean, it's my, does that sound cruel? I, I don't, I, for me, that's just so like, I think actually, it's, I think it's just good practice to, as far as maintaining the organizational health. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you've got, I mean, if you've got then group commitments, which most people call, most people talk about core values and it's usually a branding exercise and it's bullshit and it's on the wall or on some kind of PDF or some deck somewhere. But if, if it's group commitments, which is very distinct from the core, core, quote unquote, core values, but if you have commitments, you've actually gotten clear about as a leader, what you're committed to, like as a person, like here's how I'm going to show up. I'm going to show up, what grateful and honest and generous, or 
bold or whatever the thing is, inventive, whatever your, th- whatever your thing is. Like, here's what actually, here's what I'm committed to, like period, end of story, count on me to do this every single time. And if I'm not, I'm going to get myself corrected and get back in the game. But this is what you can expect of me. And if you actually deal with your team that way and call them to the same commitments, first off, you're going to let a lot of people go before you actually hire them because people don't want to be persistent or whatever your thing is. Like, and if you get really clear about it, like, oh, we're actually really persistent around here. Like we don't stop. We don't stop learning, period. And if that annoys you, don't work with us because we're, I'm going to annoy you every day and I'm going to fire you eventually or you're going to hate me so or whatever the thing is. If you call people to commitments and they don't want to live those commitments, they've got to go. Not like if they blow it because we all blow it. But if I consistently blow it, which is a pattern, then I'm just saying that, oh, I'm going to try to get by without actually living out the core convictions that the, my leadership has been crystal clear about. Then you, they've got to go. Otherwise, you're usurping your own authority because whatever you give permission to or don't correct, you're actually you're you're actually giving permission to, for people to do it. Like any kind of breach of the agreement, whatever the agreement is, the contract you have, social contract you have with your people, anytime you don't bring it up, like, For example, if Susie is the best salesperson here and she's really hard to deal with and we we allow it because she's really great and she makes us a lot of money. Well, you're giving permission to everybody can act like Susie, period. Even though the shitty salespeople are going to act like Susie and they they have you've earned it like you've given permission. So this is enforcing um, as we talk about it. Um, am I willing to enforce that the rules are being followed or that the standards are being kept? And most people, even really high performing people, great leaders in many, many companies don't want to enforce the rules. It's not like a principle, not like that. I mean, just keep the standard high because they'd rather be left because most entrepreneurs are an entrepreneur because they like to be left alone. And because we naturally lead other people the way we like to be led. So if I don't like anybody asking me questions, maybe I'm arrogant or maybe something like that, or maybe just an entrepreneur, like going by my own, you know, beating my own drum or whatever. I, I think it's too much to go intervene when somebody else, that's like a, like a natural kind of meta conversation for people where I want to treat other people like I want to be treated, but actually they don't need to be treated that way. Your job is to set the standard and keep the standard alive. So Anyway, that part of my answer, that, that's how you know, and that's how you engage. It's how you suss it out, and you keep the bar super high. I love that. And a, a couple more questions kind of came to mind as you were describing yeah. that. Um, I'll hit this one first. You mentioned that kind of hypothetical example of Susie, who's the the high-performing salesperson, but yeah. is problematic at the same time. I think there's a lot of that in organizations, unfortunately. For sure. How do you deal with... A, a toxic high performer uh, that's been allowed to skate by because they are a high performer. Yeah. Well, as most high performers are used to getting away with shit because they're so good. And they actually, we all want to be left alone at some level and want freedom. And usually freedom feels like life without restraint. I don't think that's what freedom is, but that freedom feels like life without restraint and license and uh, entitlement. So first off, with a high performer, you better know that they've gotten away with shit. Um, even, even, But they'll drive certain areas so loudly, like they're great at emphasizing certain things and certain aspects and like talking about results that they there's something, when somebody's really emphasizing something, they're hiding something else. 
So you got to like mm. listen really intently, right? It's kind of like the, what, like a magician, like watch this hand. So I don't, you don't see this hand, that type of thing that happens a lot with high, high performers. Um, and as a leader, you got to be really committed not to prostitute yourself, meaning sell out, right? So I'll take, I will lower my own standards for the money. Um, and if you want, you know, there's a difference between a high performing, high performing, oh, executor, somebody that's really good at doing something, and then a high performing leader. So if they're a high performer just doing that thing, maybe you can handle it for a while. But if, if they become, but naturally people promote high performers, which is sometimes a big mistake because it's a big jump between being a high performer on the ground. Like if I'm a sales person and I'm really great at closing deals and all of a sudden I'm a sales leader and my job is to help 10 people close deals the same way I close deals. That's a whole different ballgame. And whatever, whatever their character flaws were on the field, when they get up, when they start running the huddle, those things are going to multiply. So if you permeate into the culture, right on, because it's a model, right? It's a model and whatever we allow we generate. So, uh, most, if it's, if, I mean, I do fierce advocacy because I think it's the best way, I mean, whatever it's the way that I choose. So I like to believe in people and I like to actually to, and like put a huge spotlight on what they're doing that works. And then invite them into a conversation about what they're doing that actually betrays their great their greatest gift. So if Susie's awesome, but she's really insecure and then becomes really defensive, I want to talk about how she's awesome and like put a spotlight on that because we want that to multiply. Like how you do that, like that intuitive nuance in a, in a sales meeting, that's amazing. Can you teach that to 10 people? She probably can't, by the way. She's probably in, invisibly competent. She doesn't know why she's good at it. It's more natural for her. But, you know, can we learn that and multiply that? And by the way, have you noticed this? Have you ha have you even noticed it? Because here's what I noticed. I noticed this is happening. And I think, I mean, we know why we have our defense mechanisms, because they protect ourselves. But I, th I mean, are, are, are you curious at all about how to, like, commandeer that side of yourself? Because I'd love for you to. Because I'd love for you to, you know, you did $100 million last year. I think you do $200 million if you figure this part out. I love so, that. So, like, the corrective, the corrective side is for the purpose, right? I want her to be, a, I mean, I want her to, to be effective and I want her to thrive because if she's that defensive, she's just not that happy. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like, it's advocacy in that way. It's like, I feel for that person. And she's defensive, not because she's a bad person, it's because she's scared. That's why any of us get defensive. It's because we're scared. That's it. That's like human one-on-one shit. But we, we would judge that person or try to avoid it or try to justify it or tell people, oh, that's who Susie is. We got to work around her. But that's bullshit. That's just your lack of courage. Or you just don't know how to talk about it. I mean, that's why people hire us, because we're really great at helping people talk about hard things hard things right and they're not that hard they're just probably new and it, it it involves lots of vulnerability as a leader that's why we have the naked leadership podcast because leadership if we do it well we're naked we're actually vulnerable you know i love that so it's uh the conversation is kind of hey you're really great at this i think you could be better by correcting these things i think you could do even better than the great that you're already doing and then do you want to get better? Yeah. You know, it becomes a question. But first off, do you see it the way I see it? She might or might not see it. Um, and then 
is this something I can support you in? Do you want to do it? Because if you if you you can give somebody advice about what they ought to do, but they're probably not going to do it, because what they're doing is actually their priority. Like her mm-hmm. defensiveness isn't a pro- problem to her. It's actually the best. What we know is like like we say in our work, nobody makes a stupid decision. Everybody makes the best decision they see in the moment. Period. That's gravity. Otherwise, they would choose something else. So her defensiveness, she's probably just baked it in, and that's just who I am. Or if like if someone's more quiet, if someone's more introverted naturally, and then doesn't speak up in meetings, and and then blames the talkative person for them not speaking in meetings, and they'll they'll say it that way. Um, and so oh, what you need to do is start talk to that person. Like, do do you want to go express yourself even despite it's more uncomfortable for you? It is easier for Tom because he's a talkative dude. But do you want to speak? Yes or no? Like, do you want to? Oh, you do. Okay, good. Then how can you set up your world? How can you set up the meeting? How can you have conversations that give yourself permission to stretch yourself? There's lots of ways to do that. We can get into lots of details about how to do that. But, you know, but I would ask them if they want the growth that you see as possible for them. Most people don't ask that. They just give advice. I would presume that most that for most people, the answer is yes to that, that they would like to do better. But what do you do when the answer is no? Well, then you've got to decide because they've told you the future that's coming. You know, so you've got to decide, is it worth it? Is it worth it or not? Can I deal with this getting worse? Because it probably will. And there's a future there. So that's just part of it. It's analyzing pitfalls. Like, okay, if this is where we are now and the person is really clear, they don't want to get better at this. Okay, well, let me let me play that out. If this gets worse... What are the implications of that? What is the worst case scenario? Can I live with that? Yes or no? And and maybe there's ways to work around it. Maybe there's ways that they partner with you in working around it. Like, you know, I'm not that administrative. As a person, I don't want to be. I don't want to deal with paperwork in my company ever. I'd rather never sign anything ever, period, ever. Anything with details, no thank you. Now, I can do that, but I don't like doing it. It's just not my best gift, not my biggest, highest, and best use for the company. Um, but I've, I've generated a ton of workarounds. So all details get taken care of. They do just not by me. So I'm responsible for what needs to get done. Even, even if it's outside of my preference zone, like things I love doing, like my sweet spot or whatever you might call it. So if they're willing to take responsibility for whatever, even if it's not in their preference, then that's workable. That's one way to work it out. I love that. Another question that I had kind of set aside from earlier, you mentioned this concept of persistence and that you have to have persistence. We were kind of talking about things that you could spot that are going to be problematic and talking about how a lack of persistence or willingness to be persistent is problematic. How do you, on the flip side of that, how do you recognize persistence early or the willingness to be persistent? and maybe someone that you're looking to hire as a leader. Yeah. Well, you might, people when they're in an interview process, it's obviously like a dog and pony show. Like we're all there. Like, you know, as if you're looking to hire somebody, you're desperate to hire somebody, you, you know, you're on, you're on your best behavior. Um, as are they, right? So there's like this little bit of game everybody plays like a first date, right? We're all on our best behavior. So um, I would probably give them something hard to do in real time, give them something hard to do and see if how willing they are to persist. Hmm. Give them some kind of project to give them some kind of process. I don't know if you're gonna have a meeting with them for an hour, get interrupted 15 times and see how they do. 
You know, are they are they going to take that personally? Like, oh my gosh, I can't I can't believe this guy. Or are, do they actually committed to something? And even better if they say, hey, is it always like this? Because I mean, I'm have to learn how to how to get used to this because I like quiet and this is like really fast moving and they talk about it. Um. So I'd give them. I so you could ask them. Sorry, my point earlier was you can ask them about how they're persistent and they'll tell you some kind of story. It's obviously the best story they've got. And they planned it ahead of time. They planned it ahead of time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so, and even in interviews, most people are really just kind of checking boxes. But if you, if you ask three or four questions about a scenario, so you could say like, tell me about the biggest thing you overcome in the last year of your career, they're going to give you their boxed answer, whatever. And then, but if you actually dig into it, I can ask two or three, four or five questions about it just to get to know them and how they're oriented to their world and what they make up about themselves, what they make up about other people, what they make up about the situation, how they, you know, experiments they tried, um, you know, all the avenues and strategies that they employed in order to overcome the thing. That, that's what I want to get to know is how they reacted to the hard time. So it sounds like it's about interrupting the dog and pony show. Amen, dude. Yeah, Amen. It's, Amen. Uh, recognizing that it is that and finding some kind of way to interrupt it and get the real thing. That's as right. As quick as possible. That's right. Now, if you're just if you're just hiring to get a butt in a seat, then you won't do that. But you're gonna pay the price later, because you know how something starts is how it ends, almost all, all the time, right? So if you if you're having an inauthentic conversation on the front end, you're gonna generate inauthenticity in the relationship. Or if you like have this bullshit process now, and then all of a sudden day one, oh here's the real comp. Like, you don't want to do that. You want to be as you are, as un- and not apologetic about it. Like this is what's really going on. You know, I've got an organization right now. And so we use this tool called the Harrison assessment. That's not very well used in the U S it's only 150 consultants like us have access to it here. It's is, it stands out and I've seen them all and I've worked with most of them and most assessments are actually dangerous. They're not that helpful. This one's helpful. Um, and part, I could go into an hour about it, but one of the things that comes up in this is like, there's a score and it's about preferences. Preferences are the only thing that make the difference, by the way, in performance is not personality, it's preferences. Like, what do I prefer? What do I want? That's, that's the only thing that this, this uh, Dan Harrison, I'll nerd ball out just for a second. This guy, Dan Harrison created this thing. And he showed that if someone spends 70, 70% of their time doing what they prefer doing, they have a three to 400% increased chance of success. So if I spend 70% of my time doing what I wanna be doing, then I have a three to four hundred percent increased chance of success. Well, that's a pretty big deal, and so I better get clear about what I prefer doing. Most people are not clear about that because reality is, and we're all mysterious to ourselves. So the assessment gives people language for what they love doing. So in that, there's 164 or whatever traits. One of them is once a challenge. And one of the leaders I work with in their organization. They've we've started doing Harrison's in their organization and the once a challenge score is really low. Hers is really high. And that's pretty much the crux of the matter. Like she wants it when she when when I talked to her the other day, we we're talking about a potential COO candidate and I ran this assessment on the person. I've done a handful of these interviews to vet out proper talent and they're low once a challenge score and she's getting really clear about her non-negotiables. She's like, you know what? If I'm looking at a mountain and there's a gondola, I'm going to say, no, we're not taking the gondola. We're going to hike it and we're going to put 50 pounds in our backpack. She loves doing that shit. She wants the challenge. Me too. Um, If some people don't want a challenge, they're never going to be happy there because she's going to 
consistently challenge them. So it's good to have that conversation up front. And I'm always like, hey, you better talk about this in the next interview. If you don't, you're, you're betraying yourself. So don't come yelling, don't come whining to me later about hiring the guy and he's not up for it. Because we know he's not up for it, at least right now. You can shift. He can shift. He can change his mind whenever he wants. But his orientation towards the challenge is he doesn't want it. And that's clear. So go ask him about it. Go find out about it. And go, go be unapologetic about it. Because you don't want to hire him for his sake. If you're going to be in a certain way that he's going to be repulsed by. Or he's going to like talk about this work-life balance thing which is like kind of our excuse for not engaging whenever we want, you know, but you're going to keep, you're going to be working late nights and, and you better not apologize about it. You're in a growth mode right now. You better, you know, pull the army together. So anyway, it works out like that. I love that. I love that. So I have a couple repeat questions that I typically ask towards the end of Great. every interview. And the first one is, and I would, I guess I would use an, we can kind of talk about what the the starting point for this is. I would say kind of when you were getting into beginning to consult on leadership and on coaching, but if you could go yep. back in time and talk to a younger Adrian, having the wisdom and the knowledge that you have now, having gained it over the years of doing this, what are a couple of things you would tell him to do differently as he was getting into that? It's a great question. Before, when I was getting into my consulting practice, yeah. Um, there's more internal work I would have done back then. It took me a while. So I'll give you some specific answers, which I don't know if they'll be helpful or not. But for me, um, I came from such a varied background and it took me years to like be willing to talk about that. Like meaning like if I'm a consultant, what, you know, what qualifies somebody to be a consultant or to be a coach? We can go to some coaching school or whatever most people do, but that doesn't usually matter. Um, and it might actually make people worse. Uh, or what you should come from some, some, come some kind of history in consulting or some kind of IBM for 10 years and so, or Google or blah, blah, blah. I didn't have, I mean, I was a, I was an intensive care nurse to keeping kids alive. And then I was a pastor for many years with a the master's in theology degree. And then I, and then I ran a foundation and we worked in prison with murderers and I ran leadership trainings in prison. I guess that's kind of cool for most people, but it's not like it, it's, it, I don't have the resume that made me sit with a top dog business leader that they would naturally trust, right? Because it just doesn't work like that. When you look to market, you look to say, oh, has he been where I've been or blah, blah, blah. It took me a while to own it that if I look for the, you know, if I'm talking to my younger self, I'd be like, hey, man, honor where you came from. Honor where you came from and find out a way that this is actually purposeful. Like if you're not here on accident or just by luck or just you know, part of it would be me. I would just say, I'm just really naturally good at this or just really have raw materials for this. But I had been practicing for decades being with people in the most crucial conversations of their lives, whether it was like at the bedside when their kid's dying or in ex existential questions about God or service or legacy or things like that, or putting their lives back together when they're, when they've created shit for themselves or helping a murderer take responsibility and go back out and like, maybe get out of prison someday, which most of them did after they came, I mean, immediately, like they all had a chance of parole and they'd been denied by the board. But after our training, they get released because of how they are and how responsible they are. Um, that's a through line that works. And that's really what I do every day is help people have the most vital conversations, in the most responsible way. And I didn't own that for a long time. So if I was talking to my young self, I would have said, Hey man, own, own your history. Don't hide from it. Um, probably number one, number two, which actually might be number one is, um, practice uneasy vulnerability every single day. And by that, I, I spent, when, you know, 
What are some easy first when steps I, to doing that? Yeah, well, find somebody you trust. You might just have one person in your life, and you're going to need to have a weird conversation with them. And here's the weird conversation. It's like, hey, Tyler, I'm confused about a lot of things in life. I look really good, and I'm smart, and I'm articulate, and people trust me, blah, blah, blah. But there's things going on for me that are confusing to me, and I need some place to talk about that. Can we talk about that? Can we be buddies? Can I, like, say potentially embarrassing shit to you? Can I like wonder with you instead of bitch about it? Can I wonder with you about what's going on for me? Or, you know, might be a religious word, but like confess. Can I like share shit that I don't want to share with anybody else? Find somebody so that you're not carrying around your past and living in shame. I wish I would have done that. I mean, I, my life ran off the rails. Um, I ran my life off the rails early. I went in my consulting practice. Like I, you know, essentially became a drunk and womanizer and all this kind of stuff because I was in tons of despair and I just didn't share it with anybody. I didn't. So I just, I'm just going to handle it. You know, I just had kind of two lives going on. There's the external one that was really good, looked really good, made good money, impressive, blah, blah, blah. Internally, really alone, really depressed, really despairing in a marriage that wasn't working. You know, then generated habits to deal with all that despair, which was like drinking like a fish every night, which ended up being tons of adultery, all this kind of stuff that people don't talk about. And they live in such shame about it instead of like, hey, I need a place to put this in the light so that it's not so powerful because I don't have to judge myself. That's a part of me betraying myself, actually embracing myself and forgiving myself and then having one person that I can share to that actually believes in me and won't hold shit against me like I do to myself. Like we're all pretty hard. If you're a hard charger, if you're a high performing leader, you're probably your own worst critic, right? Like the voice in your head is pretty rough and you're probably, you know, really self-critical. And then you end up being defensive or hiding, like usually. So I would have said to myself early, it's like, hey, man, would you stop with this game? Would you find somebody you trust? Um, and then lastly, I'll give a third answer. I would get really bold. Like whatever I'm in, I didn't do this. In the coaching world or kind of the self-help world, I guess, coaching fits in. or the Like who's the best? And can you go get to know that guy? and go or that gal and go understand what they do and really you know i just went out on my own and did my own thing and i was proud of it and it worked um but i didn't like really go all in at the maximal level i did better than any coaches i had met still i mean early charged more than the norm for sure and could get any client could get clients whenever i wanted i i don't say that arrogantly i was just really good at that but i didn't like say oh i want to do i mean i i wasn't i was um, effective, but not fully leveraged is what I'm trying to say. You know, if I was talking to myself, Whoa. I would have believed in myself more and like gone after it. It almost sounds like going back to our conversation about the high performer that has qualities that need to be changed, but they happen to be high performing anyway. You found right. someone that can right help you recognize that in yourself. Kind of a full well, yeah. circle thing. I mean, there. I can... I can sniff it out in other people because I've lived it, right? And so, and you know, I'm I've always been good, uh, been talented, blah blah blah. But you know, I uh, I needed to find, and I found someone. I mean, the guy that I ended up hiring to run the, the stuff in prison, um, he was my guy, and he became he's now my business partner. His name is Dan Takini. He's the best in the world at running transformational trainings, like the best. He says there's one other guy. I don't believe him. <laughs> um, he's the best. And so, yeah, and he's my guy. And whenever my world crashed finally, and after I crashed a car and then, you know, got clear with all the drinking stuff and all the extramarital shit, he's my first call. And we wept 
because I'd been hiding from him too. And we wept. And then he said, I got you. What do you need to do? And um, he's been with me every step of the way through that. So like, find a mentor, find somebody you can talk to. It might be a peer. If you can't find a mentor, find a peer. And uh, Dan is like a peer to me. He's, 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 you know, 23 years older than me. Um, but we're like best friends. That's awesome. And my other question for you. So the show is called profession session and I yeah. very much enjoy breaking down essentially the question, what does it mean to be a professional? So I like to get a different answer from everyone I talk to. So my question is simply just, what does it mean to you personally to be a professional? Well, to, to go pro, um, to be a professional, it's that you live with the utmost ideals and you're willing to die in order to make those happen. That's probably not your typical answer. No, um, not at all, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I just mean like like I'm really after it. Like I, 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 there's an objective reality that I'm committed to doing. That's part of it being professional instead of just a hobby, right? I'm actually mm -hmm. after that. And I am willing to be a means to an end. Like I'm willing to get chewed up, be re, you know, when I say die, I don't mean literally. I, I mean like die to myself. I'm willing to like, you know, be on, on Adrian version 17.6.2.8. Like I'm nonstop being a part of my retransformation in order to make this thing happen. So if you're a real pro, you're going to do that. You're going to throw yourself at something so much you must be dismantled in order to make it happen. And you're going to remantle yourself, right? You're going to reinvent yourself, but you do that on purpose and you can't reinvent until you, until you, you know, die, until you like lay something to rest and try something new. And so a real pros are willing to do that. And it's, it's, it's rarely personal, um, but it doesn't have to be dramatic either. You know, most people s settle for the drama in their lives instead of like aim their emotions at their real legacy, at their real goals. And so a real pro is going to do that. And they're going to actually have self-control and they're going to aim at maturity and which is not avoidance, like be fierce, be fierce, um, be loud, like be committed. Put and stick your neck out there. Be willing to stand out from the crowd. If you're going to be a pro, you better stand out from the crowd. I love that. Thank you for giving me such an atypical answer because that's exactly my goal here. I, I love to get something that kind of challenges that perspective. Awesome. Awesome. Don't be boring. Most, I mean, the answer, yeah. people say the word professional. They usually mean polite. Um, and they usually are, they are, justifying their inauthenticity like something's happening and i'll let me go let me go let me go be professional which usually means bullshit like be polite don't be polite i mean be be tactful and be diplomatic but don't be polite which is like i'm holding back because they can't handle it or something like that i'm holding back because the boss is touchy go talk to the boss about being touchy like hey i'm here to make a difference and it seems like i can't really share what i want and i'm young and i'm dumb and i'm learning whatever, like, you know, be humble about it. But I'm, I, I can't, I don't know how to engage with you. I really want to engage with you. That's a, not a polite conversation. And most people hide behind professionalism, but really they're just cowards. That's why I don't, that's why most of our work is with entrepreneurs and founders, because they're usually a little more brash, much more leveraged, much more committed. They have to be versus some kind of corporate thing where there's like all this like politicking and bullshitting going on, which just drives me nuts as you can imagine i'm the same way i get it <laughs> great 
Great. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else that you would want to share with the audience? I know you've got your podcast. I think you've got a couple and some other stuff that you've done. Um, feel free to plug any of that. Talk about anything you've done. Um, you've got the coaching. Sure. Sure. Well, let's see. If if anybody wants to be in a conversation, adrian.k on Instagram. I'd love to be engaged with anybody. Um, we've You can go to takenewground.com. Check out our work. We're you'll see pretty quickly we're pretty bold in what we do um we do have a naked leadership podcast and youtube channel so if you want to get more of this and kind of topical issues around this and check out we've we've got i don't know 200 ish episodes are coming up on 200 or something and the podcast congrats been doing to it. you on that too that's awesome thank you it's really fun we love it um and you'll hear other perspectives as well i'm just one one of the dan and i are on it and it's hosted by chad who's one of our key team leaders and and coaches and trainers um, and, uh, we've got an event coming up. I forgot to ask when this is going to roll, but you know, it, there's, there's one coming up in mid April. There's another one. There's a handful of them coming up later in the year. It's called the revenant process. And let me just do a couple bars on that because if you're looking to up your personal game, you better get an environment that actually believes in you, which is different than reading a book. And it's different than asking advice from your friends or getting advice from your mama. You better get an environment where people believe in you. It's called the Revenant process. And you, you go learn about that. It's a we are Revenant, R-E-V-E-N-A-N-T. We are Revenant, like we are reinventing.com. We are Revenant.com. There's one coming up in, in Idaho mid-April. This might air after that or too close to it. If not, there are going to be other ones. We, we do those for fun. We do them because we believe in people. Like anybody can come to those. Our work is in-house with companies most of the time. This is where our clients from all over the world come to these things and anybody else that's actually ambitious and wants to take themselves on as their most important project in life. Uh, that's, it's a playground for that. It's a gym. It's a gymnasium for that. It's like it's really, I call it a boot camp for the soul. We have awesome conversations. It's not me or Dan as a teacher and everybody else as a student and get out your notebooks. No, we're in an active conversation. We keep the group small on purpose, about 30, 40 people. And it's amazing. It's life-changing. 97% of the people that have, were surveyed recently said it's one of the top three experiences of their life. Wow. So I believe them. I believe them. It's that way for me. Every time I train it, I am reinvented as well because I'm in like we're real. So if you don't like my conversation today, don't come because it's going to be like this. Um, if, if you do like this and want more of it and want to know how it affects you and want to be in a conversation with me or the team or other people, um, come. We are revenant.com. Thank you.